Well, it's great to be with you all on the first Sunday of this Easter week. Because it is Easter this coming week, we will have a little different schedule here at Grace. Just wanted to make sure you're aware of it. First thing is we have Friday night, Good Friday service. Love to have you join us. As a whole church, we'll gather at the Anderson campus. They have a little more room over there. We'll gather together at 7 p.m. on Friday night. There will not be child care. It's, it's just a time for all of us to come together. It's a little shorter service. It's very reflective. We will worship. We will pray. We will celebrate the gift of Jesus on the cross, and then we'll celebrate communion together. So we'd love to have you join us for Good Friday service. Then on Easter Sunday, we'll have services at the normal time here at Southwood and at Anderson, but we'll only have child care for the, for the littles, for up through four years old. All the other kids, youth, college, we want you all in here with us so that together we can celebrate as a family the resurrection of our Savior. So that's next week, uh, Easter Sunday. We also have a number of outreaches going on this week. Our strategy for reaching our community during Easter is for families in neighborhoods all around town to host Easter parties for the kids in their neighborhood and for the families and, and have them over and have an opportunity to share with them who Jesus is. We're still collecting supplies, so if you want to help us with our Easter outreach, we need those little plastic eggs and we need those bags of candy that's pre-wrapped, if you would bring it up and drop it off in the foyer by Wednesday, that would help us get ready for for Easter, for this big outreach we're going to do. So Easter, that's this week. Well, this Sunday, we're kicking off a new series. For the next seven weeks, for the remainder of the semester, we're going to talk together about what it means that God is our Father. It's one of the most common names for God, actually, that you'll find in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. You see repeatedly, God called your father. So we're going to talk about that word father. But there's a problem with this word father. In 2010, the U.S. Census Bureau found that 24 million children in America live without their biological father in the home. It's a third, one out of every three children is growing up without dad in the home. Many others live with dad in the home, but a dad who is emotionally detached or abusive. The result of that is that recent studies find that only one-third of adult men and women would describe their fathers as role models. Only a third. Good fathers are in short supply in our country. I was blessed. I have a good dad. But I know that that puts me in the minority. Most of you did not. Statistically, most of you either didn't have a dad around or you had a dad who didn't treat you well. And here's why that matters. A.W. Tozer says something very profound. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most telling fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That's the most important thing about you, what you think about God. So when you hear that God is your father... If you had a bad human father, then that doesn't bring warm and fuzzy thoughts to your mind. When you join us and we sing about God, our Father, that does not stir up pleasant emotions in you. Instead, it stirs up memories of pain and abandonment, abuse or or neglect or disappointment. You had a, a bad human father, and that has affected your ability to understand what it means that God is your father. And so over the next seven weeks, I want to take some time 
And I want to talk with you about what it means that God is our Father and why that's incredibly good news, even if you did not have a good human father. Now, if you did have a good earthly father like I did, then, then the goal of this study is to drive deeper your appreciation for your heavenly father, who is infinitely greater than any human father. But if you didn't have a good human father, then my goal is to hit the reset button for you. My goal is to to clear the slate of that word father and give you a new definition, a new paradigm for what a good father is, what a good father does, how a good father treats his children so that when you read about God being your father in scripture, you will celebrate it. You will feel joy from that as you see how good it is that God is our father. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about God, our Father, what that means for us. But where do we begin? Huge study, God, your Father. Where do we begin? Well, we're going to begin today with just the first word, God. What does God mean? Well, different things to different people. There's lots of different ideas about God in our world. When I was an engineer, I spent about two weeks in India. I was assigned to a company that built electric vehicles, and I was attached to one of their engineers. This man and I were attached at the hip. We spent every day, all day together. I learned a lot about him. He, he's a Hindu, and as a Hindu, he believes in 300 million gods, I believe, and, and you're supposed to, to respect all of them, but, but you choose one in particular to worship. So his family had one particular god who lived in a national park in a cave, and you could actually go visit him. There was a ladder into the cave. You could go up, and you could do homage to that god, the god of his family, his ancestors, and that particular god had particular rules for how you were to worship him, and so for part of my trip, the man was gone because he was taking his youngest son to a particular river to share his head because that's what you did to express devotion to that particular God and as this man described his version of God to me I just thought to myself wow we have very different ideas about God how in the world am I going to explain the God of the Bible to you so I would pose that question to you how would you explain the God of the Bible to a neighbor who's not a Christian Maybe a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist. What are you going to say? How are you going to distinguish the God of the Bible from all other gods? Well, in your answer, as you talk about the God of the Bible, I hope that first and foremost, the most important, most fundamental thing you will say about your God that sets him apart from all other gods is that our God is Trinity. Trinity, that big word, confuses us. It's hard to wrap your minds around. That is the single most important thing to know about your God. What sets the God of the Bible apart from all other gods is our God is Trinity. And what do we mean by that word? When we say Trinity, we mean that there is one God, just one God who eternally exists as three equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, let me be honest. That word Trinity is not found in your Bible. Read from Genesis to Revelation, you'll never see Trinity. It's a coined word, a made-up word. Theologians created that word in the third century to describe in succinct form the God that they found in Scripture. Trinity, it comes from Trinitas, three in Latin. So you're not going to find the word Trinity in your Bible, but you are going to find the Trinity revealed. It's very easy to prove that God is Trinity from Scripture. Two, Two things you do. First, 
you prove that there is only one God. First place you turn, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The most important verse in the entire Old Testament. This is the one to underline. Most important verse actually in the entire Jewish religion, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Jews say that to one another every day on a regular basis. Most important verse in the Old Testament because it declares the monotheism of our religion. That there is only one God. You see that theme throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah picks it up and talks a great deal about monotheism, that God is one. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So there, there is only one God in existence. All other versions of God are not God. So Allah is a false idol. Vishnu is a false idol. Baal is a false idol. They are not gods. They do not exist. There is only one God in existence. That is monotheism, just one God. And that strict monotheism carries into the New Testament. So you could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one There is only one God. That's the first thing that you prove. However, even though there is only one God, three distinct people are called God in the Bible. Multiple persons are called God. That begins in the Old Testament, Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. You notice that? Interesting language. God distinct from God. God anointed by your God. Now, I don't think the Jews had any clue what to do with that. They just looked at that and thought, what in the world is going on? Because all God did in the Old Testament was give hints. He just gave hints about the Trinity. He did not reveal it fully and clearly until we get to the New Testament. You turn to the New Testament and you find three persons called God. First of all, you have the Father, who Jesus himself calls God. John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So the Father is God. That's clear. But later in that same chapter, Jesus is called God. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And and Jesus doesn't say no, Thomas. Jesus accepts that identification. He, He embraces is that worship so you have the father is God and you have Jesus is God and you have the Holy Spirit is God Acts chapter 5 Peter said to Ananias Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land you have not lied to men but to God so the Holy Spirit is equated with God now just so we're all on the same page here I want you to notice You cannot lie to a force. A lot of people have this conception of the Holy Spirit as if it's like some force from God. You can't lie to a force. You can only lie to a person. 
The Holy Spirit is a he with a will, with personality, with emotions, with intellect. He's a person whom you can lie to, whom you can grieve. So you have one God who eternally exists as three equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all of that is summarized in the most important verse of your Trinitarian faith. Anywhere in the Bible, you should have this one memorized. It's to the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus' last instructions to his disciples Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the most distinct thing about your religion is that our God is Trinity, one God eternally existing as three equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now let's pause for a moment because all of this is getting awfully theological start to talk about the Trinity, and I'm actually watching your eyes out there, and I can see them glazing over. Happens every time. Start talking about the Trinity, and you're quoting all these verses, and you're talking about all these interesting things and these passages, and people just glaze over because it's so hard to wrap our minds around. It's so complicated. Three is one, one is three. What do I do with that? And not only is it really complicated, but it feels really academic and disconnected from your life. When was the last time you were walking down the sidewalk thinking, I'm so glad God is Trinity? You don't think about it on a regular basis. It doesn't seem connected to your life. So I want to help you to see the relevance of this. Why does it matter? that your God is Trinity. I'll show you by comparing your God to another God, the God of Islam. His name is Allah, and he is not Trinity. He's what we call a monopersonal God, one person. Now, that's a whole lot easier to wrap your head around. One God, one person. I can do that math. That makes sense to me. So that seems like an advantage of Islam until you ask yourself, what was Allah doing before creation? before the universe was made, before you came around. What was life like for Allah? Before creation, Allah was alone. All alone. Utterly and completely, absolutely alone. He did not have any relationships because there was absolutely no one to relate to. There was only him. And so all of those things that we associate with relationships, like love and, and kindness and compassion, those were impossible for Allah. Because those are all relational words. They only exist in relationship to other people. And so Allah did not know love. He had no idea what kindness was. He had never experienced compassion until he created you. Until he created the universe. Until he created creatures with whom he could have relationships. And so these things, love, kindness, compassion, for Allah they are dependent He needs you. He needs creation to know love because without you, he is utterly and completely alone. Now let's compare that to our God. Our God is Trinity, and so what was our God doing before creation? A party with his family. He was enjoying his family, father, son, and spirit, communicating with one another, caring about one another, being kind to one another, loving one another for all eternity. Your God has never been alone. Your God has never been lonely. Your God did not need to create you so that he would have someone to hang out with. For our God, love and kindness and compassion are an inherent part of who and what he is. Because Father, Son, and Spirit have always enjoyed love and compassion and kindness for all time. 
And so now let's think about these two religions and, and what offer they're making to you. What does Islam offer you? Well, Islam, by its very nature, is an invitation to submit. It's actually what Muslim means in Arabic, one who submits. Islam is an invitation for you to submit to the one untouchable, all-alone God up on his throne. It's an invitation to serve and submit to him as his slave. What is Christianity? Christianity is an invitation to join the family. You're not looking up at a God who is alone. You're looking at Father, Son, and Spirit who have enjoyed love and relationship with one another for all of time, and they open their arms wide and invite you in to the family, not as a slave, not as a servant, but as a child, as a son, as a daughter. You see that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He does not invite you in as a servant or as a slave, but as a son or a daughter to come in and enjoy the infinitely intimate family of the Trinity that has always existed. So you're invited to join a family, but let's talk about that family for a moment. Because let's be honest, there's some families out there that you would really rather not join. There's some families that are really unhealthy. There's some families that are held together by negative things like power, strength of the Father holding it together, or money, if you leave, I'll cut you off, or, or fear, I'll hurt you if you leave, or convenience, it's just easier to stay together. Well, you don't want to be part of a family like that. You don't want all that drama. So what is the family of God like? The family of Father, Son, and Spirit that has existed for all eternity that you are invited to join. What is that family like? What is it that has bound together, that has tied together the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? They've been together a long time. So what is it that's tying them together, that's gluing them together? We get an answer in the book of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what is the glue that has tied the Trinity together for all eternity? Well, you see it over and over there. It's love. John says twice, God is love. Now, it's interesting that John doesn't say God is loving. You know, he doesn't say God is loving. Because if he said God is loving, well, that's just an adjective. It happens to describe God on the particular day that John wrote, but if it's just describing God on that particular day, then maybe it won't describe him tomorrow. Maybe he's loving today, not tomorrow. That's certainly how my love works. Do I love my kids? Well, hopefully on good days I do. But there's some days when I'm not real loving to my children, especially days when they act badly. But you know, it's John doesn't say God is loving, as if it was an adjective that could just change at different times. No, he says something far better. He says God is love. It's not an adjective. It is what God is. His essential nature is love. The fundamental property of God, what it means to be God, is love. God is love like I am human. I will always be human. That is an unchanging, inherent part of what I am as a being. So God is love. Love is an unchanging, inherent part of the being of God. It is love that has forever tied together, united Father, Son, and Spirit. The bond between the three of them is love. 
It always has been. You see it in the book of, Ch- of John chapter 17. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the, for all time the Father has loved the Son. For all time, the Son has loved the Father. For all time, the Spirit has loved the Father and the Son. That is what ties the Trinity together. The glue that holds it together is love for one another. And you see in in this verse how love is expressed. What does love mean? You live in a culture that has no idea how to answer that question. They assume it's about passion, about emotion. That's not love. What is love? To love is to give Notice, how does God the Father express his love for God the Son? He gives his glory to the Son. He takes what is his and he selflessly, sacrificially gives it to the person he loves. That's what love is. It's selflessly giving what's yours to the person you love. And so God the Father has been expressing his love for all eternity by giving his glory to God the Son. I I want to tie something together here. that Maybe you've never thought of this before. If you've been in the church for a while, or if you've ever studied or read theology, you, you may have heard common phrase, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Your reason for existence, the reason you're here, is to glorify God, sing his praises, to worship him. It's actually really easy to prove from scripture. Psalm 86, 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O God, and they shall glorify your name. So all nations on earth will glorify, will sing praises to God. That's why we're here, the chief in demand to glorify God. Now, if we were talking about the God of Islam, solitary God high up on his throne, who created the whole universe and a a whole world full of people only for the purpose of singing his praises, just worshiping him, just talking about how great he is, and then this would all sound a little bit selfish, right? Whole God creating a universe just to make himself look good, that sounds kind of egotistical. But not when it's the Trinity. Because when it's the Trinity, what is it that God the Father wants? Who does he want all of the nations to worship? Not him, but his son. God the Father for all of time has wanted nothing more than for all of creation to worship and hold up high his son. And that's not just the, what the Father feels. The Son feels the same way. Jesus says in the same chapter, verses one and four, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Why did Jesus come to earth? Not to glorify himself. Not to make himself look good in front of you, but to glorify his Father. Because he loves his father and so he gives his glory to the father just as the father loves the son and gives his glory to the son and the spirit behind the scenes rejoices to lift up both the father and the son and give all glory to them. And so what I'm trying to help you to see is that there is no selfishness to the glory of God if you have a Trinitarian God. This desire of God for glory, it's not so that each member of the Trinity can lift himself up but so as he can give out of love glory to one another. The glory of God is infinitely selfless. It is Father and Son and Spirit eternally giving their glory, their good to one another. That's why we say that the love of God is is fundamental to who he is. God is love at the core of his being. That's what God is made of, is selfless love. Father, Son, and Spirit binding them together. 
And so it, it is accurate to say that, that God's love is actually more foundational to his being than his holiness or his sovereignty or his wrath. Why? Well, because holiness, sovereignty, and wrath did not exist until God created. All three of those words depend on creation. What is holiness? Holiness is God's complete distinction from all that he has made. Well, that's only possible once God has made something. Holiness is meaningless until there's creation. How about sovereignty? Sovereignty is God's absolute authority over all he has made. That has no meaning until God has made something. Wrath, what is God's wrath? It is his righteous expression of anger against sin. But that makes no sense until there's what? Sin. And so the eternal nature of God did not have holiness or sovereignty or wrath. Those did not begin until he created the universe. Unlike love, love has always been part of the nature of God because it's not dependent upon creation. God did not need us to demonstrate love. It's part of the inherent eternal nature of God before creation was Father, Son, and Spirit selflessly loving one another. So love is the most foundational trait of God. It's not dependent in any way on creation. It is actually the motivation for creation. The love of God, God is love, is the answer to the most fundamental question of all, most important question you'll ever ask. What is it? Why? Why am I here? That's the most fundamental question any person asks. Why do I exist? Why am I here instead of not here? Why do I exist? Well, the answer that the Bible gives is because of love. Because God loves. That's why you exist. Because God is love. It's the reason for your existence. Now let me explain that by contrasting that to other religions. So go to any other religion and ask, why do I exist? Well, most religions you're not going to get an answer. Go study Hinduism all you want. You will never get any kind of definitive answer on why you exist. Most religions do not have an answer. Some do. So the ancient Babylonians, they worshiped a god named Marduk. And they believed that the reason you exist is because Marduk wanted slave labor so that he could rest. He wanted to lay in a hammock all day. And so he made you so you could do all the work. Uh, Islam, what does Islam say to the question of why? Why do you exist according to Islam? Well, to worship Allah. Allah wanted worshipers, and so he created you, and so you could sing his praises, worship him. That's the only reason you exist, to give worship to Allah. So you study every other religion and ask, why do we exist? And either you will not get an answer, or if you do get an answer, the answer will always be about what you give to God. Whether it's service or whether it's worship, it's always about what you give to the God. The God created you so you could give him something, but Christianity has the exact opposite answer. Why did the triune God create you? Not because he wanted anything from you. The Trinity has always enjoyed perfect, satisfying love and glory in and of itself. It did not need you for anything. So God did not create you so he could get something from you. He created you so he could give you something. And that something is love. John chapter 17 again. Jesus says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I put those verses in my sermon about 24 hours ago, and since that time, I have struggled with the fact that there are no words I can say to do justice to those two verses. 
I, I don't think that there's ever been a collection of words in English that are as profound or as powerful as what's on the board right now. Do you grasp what that's saying? Do you see the significance of what Jesus is saying to you? Let's take it line by line. Glory which you've given me, I've given to them. Whose glory? God the Father's glory. God's own glory. All the greatness of God, he gave to the Son, and what did Jesus do with it? He gave it to you. The glory of God given to you. Next line. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me. You and me, I in them. What language is that? That's Trinitarian language. The intimacy that bound the Trinity together into a perfect, infinitely loving family you are invited into to enjoy that intimacy, to enjoy that relationship. And then look at the end. You sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How do I explain this to you? I, I'm afraid that you will hear me as saying that God loves you. That's not what I'm saying because that's not strong enough. That's not big enough. What am I saying? I'm saying that God loves you exactly to the same extent that he loves Jesus. As I have loved you, as God the Father has loved God the Son, so he loves you with the same infinite love. So, so God doesn't come with, with a certain quantity of love and he gives more of that to Jesus and less of that to you. That's not how God's love works. It's infinite love. Infinite love for every creature whom he loves. The same infinite boundless love. I was trying to think about how to explain this and I, I recalled over the last few weeks, my son Luke, he's five, you and I have had a rolling conversation about the number infinity. I don't know what preschool show he's watching. It's talking about theoretical mathematics, but my son was paying attention. And so he hears about infinity, and he keeps asking me questions about how infinity works. And so he asked me, Dad, if I add one to infinity, is it bigger than infinity? No, son, it's, it's infinity. It can't get any bigger. Okay, if I subtract 100 from infinity, is it less than infinity? No, son, it's infinity. You can't subtract anything from it. Okay, if I divide infinity in half, is it less than infinity? No, it's, it's infinity. It is absolute infinity. You can't make it any smaller. And we're having these conversations, and I'm realizing that is God's love in John 17. It is infinity. It cannot be made any smaller. The same infinite, boundless, total, unconditional love that the Father has for Jesus, he now has for you as well. The exact same love that has united Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity for all time is now shared with you. It is the love God has for you. God is love and that love extends to you. That is the God that we worship. A God who loves us infinitely and that is ultimately the explanation for creation. Why do you exist? Why does anything exist? Not because God was looking for servants or for worshipers, but because the infinite love of God, infinite boundless love that had bound the Father and the Son and Spirit for all eternity at some point in time, a long, long time ago, it overflowed its banks and it poured out into creation. That's what creation is. It's an overflow of God's love. God, Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed infinite love. They liked it so much they wanted more people to share it with. And so they made you. Not so they could get something from you, but so that they could give you something. The infinite love of the Trinity. God wanted more sentient creatures to enjoy the perfection of his infinite and unconditional love. And so he created the universe. That is the answer to the question, why? Because of love. There was so much love in the Trinity that it poured out into you and me. It is love that God has for us. It is love that motivated God to create. 
at Romans 8, 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many Brethren, God knew you before time began. He chose you before time began so that you could become like his son so that he would have another son or daughter to share his infinite love with. It's the whole reason for your existence. He wanted someone else to enjoy his infinite love. Now, how do I know that God loves you like that? I've quoted a few verses to you, but how do you know? It's just a few verses, but all the rest of the stuff in the Bible. How do you know? That God's ultimate motivation for you, why you exist, is because of the love of God. Well, all we have to think about is what did Jesus do right after all the stuff we've read in John chapter 17? John 17, where are we? Upper room, Last Supper. What happens next? They come and arrest Jesus, right? They arrest him, they take him to court. They try him, they find him guilty. They beat him, they whip him, and then they crucify him. They kill him. And why did he allow that to happen? Because remember, he's God. So he's infinite. He's got all power. He didn't have to let that happen. It was his free choice. So why would Jesus choose to let himself be crucified? Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die? Out of love for you. That's how I prove the infinite, boundless love of God. Not from any one verse, but from the cross. Humanity had heard about the love of God for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament, but on the cross it was proven. This is how much God loves you. When he says, God is love and I love you, this is what he means. That God himself took your sins upon himself, went onto the cross, suffered and died in your place so that you could be saved and become a child of God. That is proof of love. That Jesus, God's own son, died in your place. And that's what makes it possible for you to become a child of God. We're sinners. We, we don't deserve to be in God's family. So how can God accept us into his perfect Trinitarian family? Well, through the death of Jesus. He died to, to set our sins aside, to pay the price for our sins so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be forgiven and drawn into the family of God. And all we have to do is say yes. All we have to do is say yes to that offer, John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. All you have to do is believe that God the Son died for you willingly. He died in your place so that you could be forgiven and he rose from the dead so that you could become part of God's family. God created you out of love. That was his motivation. God saved you out of love. That was his motivation. And where I want to end is I want to help you understand that, that because of all that, because God created you out of a motivation only of love, and because he saved you out of a motivation only of love, therefore, when God looks down at you today, wherever he is, he's looking down at you right now, what God feels is love. Right this instant. If he created you only out of love, and if he saved you only out of love, and if his very nature is love, if that's a fundamental quality of what God is, then right now, as he looks down from heaven, what he sees in you is love. That's what he feels. Right now, for you, God feels love, whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, God loves you right now as he looks at you. And it's hard for us to believe that. We tend to think about God's opinion of us as if it was variable, as if it shifted with time. If I perform well, if I do good, if I obey, then God will be great with me today. And if I don't, then he will look down on me and feel some disappointment and some pain and really not like me very much. Well, that view of God would make sense if you worshiped Allah. If you worshiped a solitary God alone on his throne who made you for the sole purpose of being his servant, 
then it would make sense for him to like you better on days when you serve him and not on days when you didn't. But that's not the God you worship. You don't worship a God who made you because he wants servants. You worship a God who made you out of the overflow of Trinitarian love that bound the Father, Son, and Spirit. He created you to enjoy and experience his love for all of eternity. You need to know that. You need to believe that, that when God looks down on you, he feels nothing but love. Take you back to the quote that we started with, A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Another great theologian, a man named C.S. Lewis, heard that quote and didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. So here's how C.S. Lewis responded. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. The most important, most fundamental thing about you, the most essential thing about you is what your God thinks about you. That's what matters most. In in all of existence is what God thinks about you. And so C.S. Lewis goes on and he says, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Yes, it is. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. When God looks down on you, what does he see? He sees love. What does he think of you? He thinks love. I love that person. God loves you. As he looks down from heaven, he loves you. And so let us ask, how does God want us to respond to his love? As he looks down on you right now, always with love, how does he want you to respond? What delights the, the heart of your father? Well, I'm, I'm a dad now. I've been a dad for five years, so I can speak to this with maybe a, a little bit of accuracy. Still not a father like God, but, but I'm, I'm doing okay. So, so what is it that really delights my heart from my children? Luke and Gracie, they're five now. What, what is it that they do that really makes me rejoice? It delights my heart as their dad. Well, it's not when they perform. I, I like when they obey. It makes life work better for all of us. And I like when they learn a new skill because that's pretty great. I get excited about that. But that's not what stirs up emotions in me as their dad. What do I rejoice in as their parent? I rejoice when they come to me to be loved. I rejoice when I'm reading a story in the evening, right before bed, and my son Luke crawls up in my lap. Now he's five now, he's getting big. That's not real comfortable. I don't care because he's choosing me. He wants to be with me. He wants to be close to me. That's what fills my heart with joy. When my daughter, Gracie, when she skins her knee and she runs to me to comfort her, that's what I love. At the end of the service, now it won't be this service because it's 11 o'clock. They were here this morning, end of 915 service. My wife, Julie, she goes and picks up my kids in the nursery and she brings them out. And at some point, I finish talking to people up here, and I go out there, and I try to time it right, that I'm coming in the floor as my kids are coming out of the nursery, and they see me from a distance, and they always, without fail, they run and jump up in my arms. They, they scream, Daddy, and, and run to me, and I got to be honest with you, I love all of you, and I'm glad that you're here with me, but that's what I live for. That's what I long for. I like hanging out with you, but it's nothing compared to hearing my kids yell, Daddy, and run to me. That's what I love, when they want to be with me, when they want to enjoy my love. And I'm just a human father. Think about how much more God feels that for you. The God of infinite love, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is and always will be love, who always has nothing but love for you. What delights his heart above all else is when you come to be with him. 
when you run to him to be loved, when you look to him to provide for you, that's what he rejoices in. Not when you perform, that's what servants do. But when you come to him as a son, as a daughter, as a child. That, men and women, is what is so unique about our God. What is it that sets apart the God of the Bible from every other conception of God out there? Your God is Trinity, and because he is Trinity, he is and will always be love. That is the fundamental essence of his nature. And because God is love, he has created you not to serve him, not to worship him, but to enjoy his love for all of eternity. That's the reason that you exist. That's a reason for existence that no other religion can compete with. You were made so you can enjoy the infinite boundless love of God forever. That's the God that you worship. That's the God that we tell people about. We tell our neighbors about Jesus We tell our neighbors about the God of the Bible, not because we're just trying to build up our numbers. We tell them about Jesus, we tell them about God, because we know that there is no other religion on the planet that can offer hope and love and forgiveness like Christianity. Where else are they going to ever go to find a family to belong to, a family of infinite love, a father who loves them as much as he loves God the Son? How can we not tell people about a God like that? Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that you are a God who is love. We praise you that, we are tr- that you are Trinity. We confess that we will never fully understand that. We lack the words to even describe that adequately. We can't wrap our minds around the Trinity, and yet we rejoice that it is true. Because you are Trinity, you are infinitely better than any other conception of God. Because you are Trinity, you are the source and the fountain of love. Father, Son, and Spirit eternally enjoying one another's company. We rejoice in that because that means you didn't create us because you need something from us. We praise you because you were fully satisfied in yourself from eternity past. You created us out of an overflow of your love. You created us because you wanted image bearers who could know the love of God, who could share in the infinite, perfect love that binds you together. We praise you, Trinity. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you, God the Son, that you were willing to die in our place so that we could become part of this perfect family. We do not deserve it. We will never be worthy of it. We praise you, God the Father, that as you look down from heaven, you feel nothing but love for us. We know that sometimes we do things that grieve your heart. We know sometimes we do things that that are disappointing to you, and yet we rejoice that always you feel love for us. You forgive us. You welcome us back into your presence. You sustain us. You watch over us even when we do things that are wrong. We praise you for that. You are a perfect father who puts all of us human fathers to shame. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room who doesn't yet know you or doesn't yet know how to rejoice in the fact that you call yourself Father. I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would soften their hearts, that you would help them to see how good and how wonderful you are. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have chosen to love us. We will never be worthy of that. We thank you for your son who makes it possible. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next Sunday for Easter.